Good morning, everyone. It's uh, Sunday morning, and it is uh, May 23rd, 2021. This is the D-O-L-W Podcast 3, which stands for the, the Diocese of Lansing Watch Podcast. And that's Podcast 3. We are a group of people who um, have come together because we're not happy with the way the church has been going, the Catholic Church, and we believe that it needs some help. We believe that um, the laity have a big job in the church, and um, maybe we haven't been doing such a good job. So we're we're uh, teaching now. I am teaching now about the the um, the call of the laity, and the call of the laity. It's a book written by Ov Cruz. Um, he was an archbishop in the Philippines, and he has since passed. He uh, passed a year ago from complications from COVID. Um, this man has much insight, and he knew that uh, the church um, needed the help of the laity uh, to continue her mission to wake the laity up. And I think you'll, uh, I think you'll enjoy this. Um, I think many of us lay people do not understand what what it means and what what our what our jobs are in the church, and um, when we can say something and when we can't. So I'm going to start. Um, I did the other day. I was reading the the first chapter, and we were talking about the Christian faithful. Um, just to recap, we're going over um, one of the canon laws. It's uh, I'm going to read the canon law. It's Canon Law 203, Paragraph 1, CIC. The Christian faithful are those who, since are those who, since they are incorporated into Christ through baptism, are constituted the people of God, and for this reason they participate in their own way in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ. They are called each according to his or her particular condition to exercise the mission which Christ entrusted to the church to fulfill in the world. And I'd like this moment really to call upon the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, to all those listening, to myself, that um, I give you what the Holy Spirit wants you to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so the very first was, um, and I have already read this, it's about the Christian faithful and who we are. And then it goes into um, different things. We're going to read this this. Part here is uh, part two, and it's incorporated. And we're taken from the words that are in that canon law verse, or canon law there. All right, so incorporated. In the secular world, incorporation usually refers to a group of individuals putting their respective assets together such that they are considered by law as one composite material whole. The latter's increase or decrease, gain or loss, is altogether independent of the persons who placed and combined their resources. Hence, the main factors of the reality of incorporation in the temporal world are the following. One, that it concerns persons and their possessions. Two, that the individuals thus concerned are held definitely distinct from what they own. Three, that what are really held together as one composite whole are their temporal possessions, clearly not the persona qua different owners thereof. 
This is the way of the commercial world. In this particular case, referred to by the code, it is the people themselves who become constituent and integrating parts of something else. The individuals become one in and with somebody else. The persons are made one with a spiritual and supernatural bond such that they become members of one mystical body whose head is none other than Christ himself. This singular and profound incorporation has the following distinct elements. One, that it is the persons themselves who have intimately bound and made one with other with their individual wealth or poverty held essentially irrelevant. Two, that the that the said persons become one living corporate whole by the profession of one and the same faith and by the observance of one and the same morality. And three, that the same persons become precisely one ecclesial body of people called by God and faithful to Christ as their head. I need to take a little drink of water. In the morning I have a froggy voice. So excuse me. All right, so the next paragraph, the people of God, the mystical body of Christ, or the simply the church is the unique and immense living entity that those incorporated persons bring to reality. Among its main attributions are the following. One, that it is a worldwide body of believers in the followers of Christ. And just think of that. This is a digression. Just think of that. We're talking about the Catholic Church. It is one worldwide body of believers in the followers of Christ. You know, and in the word Catholic, for those of you who don't know, Catholic means universal. It it incorporates the whole world. All right, number two, that while the individuals concerned speak different languages, come from various races, have distinct cultures, and live in separate continents— they are but one ecclesial family. And three, that as but one people, one body, one church, they have the same ecclesial elders in the hierarchy ministering to them, the same Holy Father exercising family rule, the same Christ heading them from above. Many different peoples made into one people, millions of individuals composing one ecclesial family, This singular and special oneness is caused by virtue of a mysterious bond that makes them precisely the mystical body of Christ. This mystical bond, effective of one mystical body, draws its origin primarily from the following three profound living realities. One, the reality of but one Christ from the start to the end of time. Two, the reality of one's salvic birth, teaching and passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And three, the reality of one's spiritual grace flowing into and among Christ's faithful, inspiring, strengthening, and sanctifying them. In addition to its being, but one and only mystically corporate people, they also have the rightful claim to the members of the church, which is holy, Catholic, and apostolic. That is to say, first, holy because their head is holy. Teaching them a holy doctrine, 
and providing them with holy sacraments, giving them holy liturgical observances, and preparing for them a holy destiny. Second, Catholic, because they are one people, such as wherever they go at whatever time of the year and with whomsoever in the world, they feel and experience a sense of belonging to one ecclesial, universal family when they come to worship together by saying the same prayers, participating in the same liturgy, making the same sign of the cross, among many other practices. And third, apostolic because they profess the creed of the first apostles themselves. They trace their origin to the evangelizing works of the first apostolic community in the same way that their ordained elders trace their origin from them. I want to digress here. Um, I just wanted to say my dear dad, who who died at the age of 91 a few years back, um, one of the things he always taught me is that no matter where you go, you in the world, you can go to church in a Catholic church and feel that bond and feel that closeness. And I have found that to always be true. May, there may be a little difference in, in the way they do things, but in general, the prayers, the mass, the communion, all of that is the same. And it's it really gives um, me, and I'm sure you all who are Catholics can testify to that, that it um, it just gives us um, a sense of unity. Okay, now we're going to go on to baptism and what it means. Um, so this is the third thing we were talking about in that canon law today. Um, and it's about the Christian faithful and how we are all incorporated. So the baptism, it is the reception of the sacrament of baptism that is fundamental, start of the incorporation of someone into the mystical body of Christ. So just so you know that, that when we are baptized, we become part of that mystical body of Christ. M- most Catholics are, ba- are baptized as babies from that point on. They are part of the mystical body. This is why a baptized individual is considered a new person before the Father with the Son in the Holy Spirit. The sacred and noble truth is apparently easily said, but not readily understood. For example, the reception of the sacrament of baptism effectively makes someone, somebody else as a Christian faithful. Let me read that again. The reception of the sacrament of baptism effectively makes someone, somebody else as a Christian faithful. Very important, very powerful words right there. We are now part of the Christian faithful. However, it can somehow still be explained in plain language. The person is said to be new, not really because priesthood is changed, or the person, I'm sorry, the person is said to be new, not really because personhood is changed. What is actually altered is his or her status and his or her consequent personality before God and before the church. From an infidel to a faithful one, this is the change in status, viz. from that of an unbeliever to a follower of Christ, from a human nature soiled with original sin to one cleansed with the salvic grace won by Christ. This is the change in status, viz. from that of rejection to that of adoption as a child of the Father, from one who disowned 
to, to an heir of the eternal kingdom opened by the redemption of humanity brought about by the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. The newness of the person is real before the Father. In other words, it was the person of a man and a woman that the Father created to his image. It was all these persons who thereafter turned their back to the Father, but time came when they were again enabled to face the Father by the redeeming action of Christ on their behalf. Their mere potentiality to stand before the Father was brought to actuality by their faith in Christ, signified through their reception of the sacrament of baptism. Thus, it is that every redeemed, baptized, and faithful person becomes a creation with a new standing before the Father. And how awesome that is. The newness of the person is possible in the Holy Spirit. Humanity was long blinded by original sin. It made men and women lose their way to their assigned destiny. Thus, they they needed a guiding light, an inspiring grace, and a salvic force for them to find once again the right way, know the eternal truth, and have everlasting life. All these became a real possibility through the intervention of the Holy Spirit. All these eventually turned into actuality in all those members of humanity who became believers, who were baptized, and who thereby became new persons in the Holy Spirit. The newness of the person is true with the Son. When men and women become a new creation before the Father and in Holy Spirit, it is with the accompaniment of the Son. The truth is that created by the Father and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, the sacrament of baptism cleanses people from their original sinful stain through the redeeming grace won by Christ, through his incarnation as the Son of the Father, by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is both a supernatural truth and a historical fact that men and women become new persons with the Son, as the incarnate Christ who still heads and leads them in their ongoing pilgrimage to the eternal kingdom of the Father. Excuse me, I had to take another drink. Okay, number four, as we continue on. People of God. The baptized who are incorporated into Christ are themselves, in effect, made the constituent members of the people of God. This is a consecrated reality founded on the committed relationship between God and his chosen people. These, he is their God, and they are his people. This is the covenant between God and a chosen portion of humanity, whereby the former becomes their God and the latter in turn becomes his people. This is the testament of faith. For example, God making himself the object of faith and his people reposing their faith in him. Powerful. What is immediately evident is the infinite inequality between the covenant the covenanted parties. On one hand, God stoops down to make a commitment with people he simply created. On the other, that lowly people are thereby ineffectively elevated by God by committing themselves to him. The gross inequity is biblically expressed through the mystical 
statement made by God himself. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That's Leviticus 26, verse 12. This immediately reveals the graciousness of God and blessedness of his people, strangely founded on his infinite goodness and the pitiful condition of the people he calls his own. The fundamental reality God opted for in this covenant with his people is hopefully a bilateral fidelity. This simply means that just as God would never abandon the people he calls his own, would that his that this people never abandon or renounce him as their one and only true God. Common knowledge, however, readily attests to the fact that while God, while the good Lord keeps his commandment under all circumstances and in all times, his people, a good number thereof, at least, do exactly the opposite. This usually happens when they choose instead to worship worldly vice, earthly wealth, and a forbidden flesh, as if any or even all these could in any way take the place of God. And I want to digress here because um, those of you who have been listening to my podcast and to um, the D-O-W-L podcast, I'm sorry, the D-O-L-W podcast and the D-O-L-W podcast too, you will know that we have been reading from the um, lengthy work of Randy Ingalls in the church who um, did an investigation that took her 17 years to complete. And um, we have been reading from the, the volume four in her series, and it is uh, powerful in to see what happens when um, earthly people, um, such as these priests and bishops, become a network of evil. Um, because they, what are they doing? They're worshiping their worldly vice. They're following their passions rather than following the good God. Okay, next uh, paragraph. Fidelity is the cornerstone of the covenant between God and his people. That God keeps his word is altogether beyond question, but that his people keep their word is precisely the big issue and problem. This would was true before before the coming of Christ. This was true after his coming, and this remains true to this time and age. But this matter cannot be left indefinitely unconsidered and unresolved. Such ultimate consideration and resolution come with the second and last advent of Christ. Then it will become definite and defined. These who are really God's faithful people and who are otherwise by their persistent betrayal and adamant denial of him. As previously said, the people of God, the Christian faithful, or the church, is the composite of the baptized laity, the avowed religious, and the ordained clergy. Absolutely no member of these three sections of God's people is exempted from fidelity to the covenant precisely under penalty of separation from his love, his grace, and his kingdom. Wow, I think that is so powerful and so important for what our work is here. I'm going to read it again. As previously said, the people of God, the Christian faithful, or the church, is the composite of the baptized laity, the avowed religious, and the ordained clergy. Absolutely 
no member of these three sections of God's people <clears throat> is exempted from fidelity to the covenant, precisely under penalty of separation from his love, his grace, and his kingdom. Contrary to common perception, it is not true that clerics and or religious should be more faithful to God than the layman and laywoman in the church. They are equally obliged to be faithful to the good Lord. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to take a drink of water here. The difference, however, is the members of the clergy and the religious are more accountable for their infidelity. The reason, they must know better and wherefore should act better. Plain and simple. When we look at these bishops, I'm digressing here, when we look at these bishops, especially the homosexual bishops that we've been reading about in these books, and we can be assured they're not all gone. You know, their, their weeds in, in this uh, church have been planted, and they, have, um, they grow up with the wheat. So remember this, you know, that they have a job, and um, um, remember that, you know, they are the clergy, they are the religious, they are, they are the um, shepherds of the flock. They must know better, and wherefore should act better. Keep that in mind. Okay, now I'm going to go on to number five. And um, it's, this one is about participate. I think this is an important one, and after this I will stop. Briefly and plain, plainly, to be participant in something is to take part therein. Evidently, to take part is to be actively involved in whatever agenda one participates in. Participation immediately connotes joining a plan to be observed, a program to be accomplished, or a project to be done. Participation <clears throat> infallibly, excuse me, I got to take a drink again. <clears throat> Participation infallibly implies a mandate to be fulfilled, <clears throat> a work to be accomplished, or an event to be pre presenced. Furthermore, when one is expressly asked to participate in something, this means that he or she certainly has an active part a dynamic role to fulfill. And remember, this participation starts with our baptism. So, um, and I think this is a very important section here. The antithesis of participating is to be passive, indifferent, or even rejective of taking part in something that should be done. So, And I think this is important for us laity. You know, we, we often opt to believe that our priests, <clears throat> um, our clergy, our bishops, are taking care of things even when they go awry. And I think we need to be actively knocking on their door. I think we, as our Pope told us, Pope Francis, that, um, you know, we, the sheep, are to bother our shepherds. We are to um, knock on their door. It's very important that we know we have a job, that we have a duty. It's our duty to follow these things and to stay awake. So this is talking about the antithesis of participating is to be passive, indifferent, or even rejective of taking part in something that should be done. So now we know. We know we have to do something. 
Before God and man, it is truly frustrating to expressly and formally ask someone to be a part of something only to be rejected. This is especially true if participation is not altogether voluntary, but actually mandatory for the good, not only of the agenda, but also for the benefit of the participants themselves. It, has, it can be legitimately said that without a part, the whole is incomplete. Among other things, this indicates how significant every Christian faithful is in the church. This is how significant when you see yourself in the pew and seeing, you know, as I did, and um, that there's not much I can do. It's kind of like how I feel in the world. But one voice can mean so much, and that's why we are about voices, the little voices, voices that aren't heard that, Maybe your priest and your staff think are just bothersome, get rid of them, you know, walk by them when they speak to you, um, you know, ignore what they're saying. You know, that is not God. That is not, um, that is not what priests and clergy are expected to do or us. Listen. It doesn't mean you have to have the answers, but listen. Both the text and the context of the law clearly convey that the envisioned participation is not altogether optional. This is especially true because the norm is much concerned with an ecclesial agenda that the Christian faithful are explicitly enjoined to take part in, categorically as followers of Christ. This participation is intended to continue the evangelizing work Christ did during his earthly sojourn. This way through the active participatory presence of the Christian faithful in the here and the now Christian agenda, it is as if Christ were still physically present in the world, in the time and the age they actively live. Time and again in the history of the world and humanity, it happens that there are so many virtuous things that are left undone just as there are so many vicious items that remain uncorrected. Reason, the inaction of people, supposedly of goodwill. It is a fallacy to say that it is enough for good people not to do anything for evil individuals to thrive. And I think that is what has drawn me here more importantly than anything and why I feel God is calling me to this work. It's not that I like doing this work. I want you all to know um, Although it is fulfilling, it does give me meaning and purpose in my life. But it is not easy. You have to stand up um, to people who are your friends, that who believe, yeah, in a certain way, that when they go to Mass on Sunday and they, and they sing beautiful music and they, they feel all peaceful and lovey-dovey um, with one another, and then all this corruption is allowed to go on, um, there's something really wrong with that. And, we, and that is... You know, and that is what he's saying here, <clears throat> that these evils are allowed to thrive because we don't feel it's our job, because we don't feel that is necessary, <clears throat> that we let our our priest and clergy, you know, so we have to claim half the problem. You know, we're half the problem if we're not standing up and pointing fingers and speaking out against evil. I'm going to read that one more time. The profound falsity in this often repeated maximum is that it is incongruous to quality to qualify people as good when they precisely do nothing to correct what is manifestly wrong. They do not only see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil, 
but exactly do nothing good either. From the above, one conclusion clearly emerges that in very specific and distinct way, no member of the Christian faithful may licitly do nothing good nor participate in something good. This is particularly true in the ecclesial agenda. These things in and for the church among the people of God or in favor of people who do not belong thereto, precisely to bring them ultimately into the fold of Christ. This is precisely the reason why Christian repentance is directed not only against sins of, of commission, but also against those of omission. There is the strong presumption that good things not done are much more in quantity and quality than evil deeds perpetuated. This is not hard to recognize. Just look at what is happening in our times. And I'm going to end here. You know, so, you know, I, I just want to relate that, you know, we have been reading, and I have my uh, my friend and colleague, John, who has been doing, uh, he, he you can hear him on D-O-L-W-2. He has been going deep into de- uh, depth with this rite of sodomy, the homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church. He's been reading faithfully every day um, about the homosexual network. And I think it's important if you get a chance to listen to him, even if you can't listen to this every day, to see what he's talking about, to see what Randy Engels spent that 17 years of her life getting into because of the infiltration, because of the, as I said, the weeds that are growing up in the aftermath of those who, um, these bishops and priests who have allowed this to happen, who have become soft on homosexuality. Am I against or find evil in homosexual persons? Absolutely not. I have some um, family that are homosexuals, and I have some friends that are homosexuals, and living together, and, and doing a lot of good. So I am not one to say, but I am one to say, that homosexuality does not have a place in the church, in the hierarchy of the church, um, that their job is to teach morality and um, to be, um, um, I can't think of the word, but to be celibate, to be celibate. And especially if you're passionate about the opposite sex, you do not have a place in the church, in the church hierarchy. Do I say you shouldn't come to the Catholic Church and come to Mass and do that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But in the church, you are not the material that we need for to be a good priest and a good bishop. You are hurting the church. And I think um, John brings this up a lot in his thoughts and his commentaries. I, I would um, and, um, ask you to please listen to some of his podcasts. So as I go forward, I'm going to read a little bit from um, Randy Ingalls, just a, just a short amount today to help you tie into your memory um, what is going on into the church and maybe inspire you to to wake up in the pews, to listen to what's going on. And, you know, it could be, it could be other things going on in your church. It could be financial concerns. It could be how maybe some members um, in the church are being treated um, and ignored and you're aware of it. These things all need to be brought out. Because as, um, as um, Ovi Cruz so nicely points out, is that 
everyone is included in the image and likeness of God. And he created each soul for a purpose. We don't know what that purpose is. And to just abandon them is not, is not God-like. It's not what as a church, a Catholic church with universal love is supposed to just ignore. Okay, so I'm going to start on page 842, and again, that's in Volume 4, The Homosexual Network in the American Hierarchy and Religious Orders. And we have Randy Ingalls with us today in her writings. Um, So on page 842, Bishop Joseph Hart, the Diocese of Cheyenne. Joseph Hubert Hart was born on September 26, in 1931, in Kansas City, Montana. To Hubert and Catherine Muser Hart, he has one sister and a brother, also a priest of the Diocese of Kansas City, Kansas City, St. Joseph. He attended parochial grade school and high school, and in 1948 went to Rockhurst College. He attended St. John's Seminary in Kansas City for a short while before changing to St. Mainrad's Seminary in Indiana, where he completed his training for the priesthood. Father Joseph Hart was adorned was ordained on May 1, 1956, for the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, Montana, where he served as priest in the number of parishes and then joined the chancery staff. His ordination as an auxiliary bishop of the Diocese of Cheyenne took place on August 31, 1976. Bishop Hubert Newell officiated and Bishop Charles Helmsing and Bishop Michael McCullough cited earlier in connection with the cover-up of Bishop Anthony O'Connell, assisted as co-conservators. I want to digress here. Now, I want you to to make sure you're you're looking at the cover-ups, those who are around them that know these are sins, that know that they are responsible for souls in the church that allow these victims to go through this horrible pain and to those all around them. And then for later, for the church to suffer when these things come out. Thank God they are coming out. But I want you to realize that in the aftermath, these, there are shoots from all this that are left behind. We need to be very observant and very awake. His appointment as bishop of the Diocese of Cheyenne, Wyoming, came on April 25, 1978, and his installation took place on June 12, 1978, at St. Mary's Cathedral. As the Bishop of Cheyenne for more than two decades, he served on the all-important NCCB Administrative Board and Representative Region 13 for six years. He also served on the NCCB Committee for Priestly Life and Ministry. Bishop Hart was a member of the Conception Seminary College's Board of Regents from 1979 to 1984. He ordained 25 priests during his term as the ordinary of the Diocese of Cheyenne. Next section, first civil suit filed against Bishop Hart. On January 21st, 2004, a 210-page, 75-count civil suit was filed in the Circuit Court of Jackson County, Missouri by attorney Rebecca Randalls on behalf of nine alleged abuse victims, three named and six anonymous. The accused were Bishop Hart of the Diocese of Cheyenne and two other priests who served together with Hart in local parishes in the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, Montana. From the late 1960s on, 
Bishop Hart has pleaded innocent to the charges made against him. It was not the first time the bishop, that Bishop Hart has been implicated in the sexual assault of minors, nor the first time he has denied such charges. The first molestation charge against Hart was made in 1989 and repeated in 1992. The accuser, age 40, was pre preferred to remain anonymous to protect his family, told Kansas City St. Joseph diocese officials that he was molested by Father Hart in 1969 when he was a 6th or 7th grade student at St. Regis Parish. The alleged victim said that he was sitting on a couch in the television room of the rectory when Pastor Hart came over to him and began to, to engage in some horseplay. He said Hart started to move his hand down, un, down, unbutton the boy's jeans, and tried to unzip his pants, all the while laughing and saying it was okay. The man said he managed to escape from Hart and went home confused and frightened. He told no one about the incident. Can you imagine having to hold that in and to being so fearful? The man re reported that Hart grabbed him and said, You're a troublemaker. Nobody's going to believe you. Initially, the alleged victim told his story to Vicar General Norman, Robert, who put him in touch with a nun psychologist for counseling for a one-year period. The Kansas City St. Joseph Diocese picked up the tab for the therapy in 1993, Rotert met again with the victim who was going through a divorce and had fallen on hard times. Rotert told him that Bishop Hart had denied the charges against him, but even so, the diocese was willing to help him out. The help the diocese offered took the form of a black Chevy extended cab truck with the diocese paying 12100 and the victim paying the balance of 2556 In return, the victim signed a document of confidentiality stating that he would seek no further compensation from the diocese. The diocese also stopped paying for the man's therapy. I just have to ask you all, do you think the diocese should be responsible for this man's therapy? I do. That's why... Um, I'm all for, <clears throat> um, we've, been, we've been promoting um, in the DSA, um, you, know, uh, you know, the monies that we send to the DSA to starve the DSA. The reason being that when you stop the money going to these fraudulent things um, and helping these, these guys out, going to these fraudulent things supports the very things that you fight against. Believe it or not, if you do your investigation, you will see that monies are spent um, in dioceses. Whole dioceses and churches fall apart because of it, because the money has to be spent for these kind of uh, criminal actions. So starve the DSA. What and 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 send money to to places yourself, you know, in in the name of God to help the poor and to feed the poor, to help victims of abuse. Um, I would much rather um, send my own money out of my own hand, knowing what I am doing, knowing that I'm not funding abortions because Catholics have become soft, knowing that I'm not funding uh, homosexuality um, um, legislation. Why? Because it allows our priests and bishops who have gone awry, 
who are not holy men and doing evil to continue. Um, it paves the way for them to bring it more into the church. It does not have a place in the hierarchy. Um, priests are to be celibate or at least work to- towards that. They're in a sea of men. If they are homosexuals and they have that passion and they are not properly formed um, and their passions are allowed to run awry in, um, in seminaries and things like that because they, for the beginning, never had those passions under control, there's a sea of men around them. My goodness. He said that in 1989... The same individual came to Kansas City St. Joseph Diocese and demanded money for the alleged abuse. Hart said that diocesan officials looked into the charges and determined that they were not credible. However, in 1992, when another charge of sex abuse was made against Hart, apparently the diocese had a change of heart and decided to pay the victim off with a truck in exchange for silence. Do you think that those exchanges are really important? Does it keep this an ongoing? um, In my mind, I say the silence keeps it ongoing. My question is, um, how deep? You know, you keep the silence going. And how many other lives around you are ruined? How many young priests who are wanting to become, uh, who are seminarians who want to become a priest, and this silence is, is part of the game, part of the evil? The second case involving Bishop Hart and a 14-year-old boy, Kevin Hunter, was first reported in 1992, three years after the young man died. The Hunter family first met Father Hart when he received his first appointment in 1956 as associate pastor of Guardian Angels Parish in Westport in the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph. Kevin's mother, Stella Hunter, had worked for the church for three decades. The alleged grooming of the victim was said to have taken place over a period of years. Father Hart remained as at Guardian Angels from 1956 to 1962 and then was transferred to Visitation Parish in Kansas City from 1962 to 1966. In 1964, he was made vice chancellor of the diocese but continued to assist in other parishes until his appointment as pastor of St. John Francis Regis Church in Kansas City in 1969. Hart also acquired teaching experience at Bishop Lilius High School and Loretta Academy and worked with mentally disabled children at St. Pius X School for Special Education in Kansas City. In 1971, Pastor Hart, who had become a close friend of the Hunter family, took their teenage son, Kevin, on a summer vacation to the Midwest. The hunters reported that after Kevin returned home, he was a different boy. His life became entangled in the world of drug abuse that contributed to his early death in 1989. However, while Kevin Hunter's life was rapidly spiraling downward, Father Hart's career had taken off. On July 1, 1976, Pope Paul VI anointed Hart as an auxiliary bishop of the Diocese of Cheyenne. Wyoming under Bishop Hubert M. Newell, who was due to retire in two years. Auxiliary Bishop Hart became Vicar General for the Diocese of Cheyenne that included the entire state of Wyoming and the pastor of the St. Patrick's Church in Casper, where the diocese maintained some of its offices. 
When Bishop Newell stepped down, Joseph Hart became the sixth bishop of Cheyenne. Kevin Hunter did not reveal his dark secret to his parents until the 1980s. And it was not until 1992, three years after they had buried their son, that they contacted the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, to inform them of the sexual assault of Kevin by Hart in order to prevent the priest, now Bishop of Cheyenne, from abusing younger boys. And this is, this is what silence can do. You know, the, the fears and the, you know, a, a lost soul, um, a, a young man who died, whose life could have been so different. The hunters did not seek a financial settlement, nor was a lawsuit a consideration at the time. Two of Kevin's married sisters, however, did take advantage of the diocese offer for the psychological therapy that cost more than $17,000 over a two-year period. Vicar General Norman Rotart and Chancellor Richard Carney handled the matter for the ordinary of Kansas City, St. Joseph, Bishop John Joseph Sullivan, both the Papal Nuncio of the United States and the United States Conference of Bishops were notified of the Hunter allegation, but no law enforcement agency was contacted by either party. And unfortunately, you know, as a parent, um, you know, I can re- I can relate to these pains. You know, when you lose when you lose a child to some awful thing that happened in their childhood, and there's a part of their soul that you see goes down with it. Um, it's something you never get over as parents, um, you know, and then too, you know, the, um, the son didn't want this brought out, um, formally brought out, but yet what does silence do? It, um, it just allows everything to grow. And these people, you know, dealing with the pain of their son and the loss of their son and um, thank God later it could come out. But, you know, and it's also the church. It's also, you know, they, their souls and, you know, why this would have been put on them. You know, all those whys of, you know, what didn't we do? Um, I, have been, I have been there, um, not with something so uh, terrible as this, but I have been there. And I live with it. And uh, it's like um, a sword pierces your heart. And, um, and there's nothing you can go back and undo. You can only try to be loving and helpful. So I encourage, and I'm so thankful victims now in this, this climate, um, as years have gone by and they are able to come forward more, um, I just thank you for your, incur- your courageousness to bring these things out. <clears throat> and I pray that that's how it happens in the seminaries and things um, that the seminarians who do point things out and who are whistleblowers, that it becomes more a reality, more um, supported by those around them, that uh, not to hide these things, that to break the silence and to be courageous and bring them out. Evil will not win. Nevertheless, in 1993, Hart volunteered to check himself in the psychiatric evaluation at Sierra Tucson in Tucson, Arizona, a secular residential institution specializing in alcoholism. After one month evaluation, Hart returned to his bishop's post in Cheyenne and carried on as if nothing had happened. His activities were never monitored. The whole affair was deep, 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 deep
the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, advised the hunters that doctors at the facility had certified that the 60-year-old bishop no longer posed a threat to himself or others. Diocesan officials made it clear that providing money for counseling was not tantamount to an admission of guilt. So I'm going to stop here, and I want you to think about silence. I want you to think about um, the duty of laity. You know, we, we talked about that in the beginning. Um, I want to go on, but I see I'm, I'm running, running out of time. But I was going to read f- to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, the, the sources of morality. But I'm just going to leave you with a thought. Um, this is from um, Article 4, The Morality of Human Acts. I'm going to leave you with this, and we're going to go into a little bit of uh, what constitutes um, morals and, um, and how they can be both evil or good. Freedom makes man a moral subject when he acts deliberately. So just remember, it's our freedom to do so. Man is, so to speak, the father of his acts, human acts, that is, that are freely chosen in consequence of a judgment of conscience can be morally evaluated. They are either evil or good. You know, on yesterday's podcast, I don't know if any of you had a chance to listen to it. Um, I'm not even sure I uploaded it yet to Facebook, but I will. Um, We talked yesterday, um, Mike, um, who brought in some some really good information from, um, it's about the moral universe, and it, it was by Bishop Fulton Sheen. For all of the you that don't know, he is he is you know had trouble becoming um, becoming a saint. He's he's deceased. For those of you who don't know, but he was a real man. He was a real bishop. He brought out evils and pointed directly into the face of evil, and basically he's punished for it. So um, you know deeds like that, um, good good deeds, you know when they are surrounded by evil are hard to fight, but. Good will overcome, and that's what we are to do. So again, um, we'll start um, tomorrow. I'll read some from the moral morality of human acts. It is in your catechism, and you can see it in Article 4, starting with 1749. And with that, I'm going to uh, leave you with some closing prayer. And I thank you all for giving me your time and listening, and I pray that you spread the word of... Um, We as lay people in the church, we do have duties, and we are baptized Christians, baptized into this universal church. Our church is so full of history, both good and evil, and um, we are always there to try to right the ship. So with that, I ask the Holy Spirit to come down upon all of us, all of this listening um, to this today, and, um, and for those around you who may not be listening, that you share this with them and help them to begin to understand who they are in the church and how important they are to Jesus. Jesus needs us. Lord, we ask that um, each one of us begin to know that what we are to do, what you are calling us to do, Lord, um, through the Holy Spirit, which you um, glorified in your life, death, and resurrection, you know, your whole purpose was so that we could, as a people, have this Holy Spirit through your word, through the Holy Spirit, through baptism, Lord, we ask that we become more united in good and spread the world, spread to the world the good that you intended. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.